Welcome back to the Buffalo Bread Podcast. As always, JJ here with ever omnipresent Dan talking through the Bills offseason. Uh, it's it's a time, it's a weird time. We are in we're in weird times. It's February 23rd. Uh, it's a leap year. The Bills are $53 million over the cap. Um, or less now. Less now because we have a recent update. Dan, why don't you walk us through it? Breaking news. Uh, breaking news on the pod. The NFL has just announced, JJ, that the salary cap for this upcoming 2024 season is going to exceed $255 million. The exact figure is $255.4 million, which is a 13.6% increase over last year's cap, the highest single-season cap increase in league history, um, or so I am told, by the intrawebs. So what this means for the Buffalo Bills is that rather than being close to $51 million over the cap, they're going to be somewhere more around $41 million over the cap, JJ. So still significantly over the cap, but as we talk about contract restructures or potential cuts to this team here in this pod, one, maybe even two beloved veteran Buffalo Bills player may be saved from being a cap casualty as a result of this historic increase. That's exciting, and I think, too, um, really kind of sets the table that all the levers that the Bills, their Brandon Bean would pull in order to get cap compliant and get them some breathing room to sign rookies, sign a, you know, vet minimum deals and things like that to make their team whole in the offseason, they don't maybe have to pull as many levers. And if they do pull all of those levers and push some things down the road, it might mean that instead of, you know, working on one $5 million per year annual value deal that would be the splash, quote unquote, of, of free agency for the Bills, it might mean that they could do a $10 million deal or a $12 million deal annual value and still come in under the cap because that, that extra little bit of wiggle room is it is advantageous. And um, for anybody in Bills Mafia who's like, God, well, how, how did Bean get us in this predicament? I think he had an excellent plan that was blown up by COVID. The league had never had a reduction in salary cap you know, in, in the modern free agency era until the COVID year. And so in order to set the projection, he had it to the wire, assuming he'd have a large quarterback contract. He did end up having a large quarterback contract, and um, the, the wire fell out from under him. Yeah, JJ, I, it's, it is, there's criticism of the roster build that you can absolutely lay at Bean's feet, and we have done that on a multitude of occasions. The cap figure being what it is, is more of the cost of doing business in the modern NFL. Every team wants to hit on their franchise QB, and under Bean, we have hit on that particular person in Josh Allen. But what that means is that the roster around that franchise QB needs to start getting younger and cheaper. And because of a little bit of the reset, as you mentioned, that we faced under COVID, the cap projection and increases in uh, increases in projection did not fully come to fruition. So the Bills roster uh, financial strategy with the cap took a little bit of a hit, no pun intended, but this $255 million increase will go a long way to helping out. And as you mentioned, the totality of a contract they can offer someone, say, an AJ Epineza to potentially stay on the team with a larger role, um, the odds of that happening just got a little bit better depending on how Bean chooses to approach getting under the cap and creating space which I think JJ is a great transition into this pod. So on this pod, we've already covered a, a preliminary draft preview, free agency preview. 
Now we're going to do what we we have done with so many of our co-hosts of other AFC te- AFC East teams and our friends of the pod, not friends of the Bills segment, JJ. We ourselves are going to pose burning questions about the Buffalo Bills offseason and do our best to provide some answers to said questions. And JJ, the first question I think that is on every Bills fan mind is how are we going to get under this now $255 million salary cap, erase the $41 million deficit, and also create some additional space to bring on some veteran presences, sign our rookies, but also maybe bring back a familiar face or two. Absolutely. And I think too, you know, um, I guess the the place to start for me in the way that we're likely going to see um, what is the, the league year starts? Is it March 11th or something like that? It's the yeah. day before yep. free agency. Yeah. The day so, before free agency. Yeah. So the, the league year is coming up here um, in about three weeks, uh, two and a half weeks. And once that league year starts, that is when the bills need to be cap compliant. And so it might even be the literal day before you're going to see some things happen. And I think that the first thing that you're probably going to see happen that is most likely um, is a base salary restructure. And that is where you basically say, okay, Josh Allen, we know you're going to be here through the the rest of your um, your contract. Your current 2024 cap hit is $47 million. We're going to just take a, a chunk of that money that we owe you and we've already agreed to pay you, and we're going to give it to you as a signing bonus and we're going to spread it out over the next five years. And that cuts his cap hit from 47 to 29. And so right there, by doing that, the bills have dropped from kind of 40 million over the cap um, or 43 million over the cap to 25 million over the cap. And that is a, you know, to, to chunk it in half like that on a player you're definitely not going to part with is probably what we'll see first. And that's kind of the first step is take a base salary restructure on maybe Josh Allen, um, maybe like Dawson Knox, Matt Milano, we think is going to be around. Ed Oliver is, is probably going to play out the rest of his contract. Um, so spreading it out for those guys is not really doesn't not too much pain. Um, Connor McGovern Govern earns you you know two two point three million or so. So there's some of those things that are going to happen. That's the first step I think to to clear up some space. And then the second step is to do some uh, re, um, extensions for some of our players. Um, I know I have some targets, but who are some players on the Bills that you, Dan, think that they should extend to cut their cap hit this year down and get some more years on a player that we believe also is going to be on the roster in two or three years? Yeah, I think there's a couple that I would target for those extensions. Uh, One, for sure, is Razul Douglas. Uh, He is set, I think, this year to make $9 against the cap. Um, Extending him out would definitely lower that cap hit to something much more manageable for the Bills and maybe save anywhere, depending on what they agree on the first year of salary would be, could save them anywhere between 4 and $5 million against the cap. Uh, Taron Johnson is another one, JJ. He has just played excellent ball. And as you and I have talked about, his skill set, even as he starts to age and some of the athletic decline starts to set in, he's a candidate for me who could also transition to the safety position just based on his skill set and profile later on in his career. So an extension for him also makes sense to me. Even if he's not going to be your primary nickelback in two, three, or even four years, he's got position versatility built into that skill set that I think makes him a a logical candidate for an extension as well. There's another one, and I'm less keen on this one, but I'd love to get your take on it. Deion Dawkins. So Dawkins is coming off 
you could say his best year at tackle for the Buffalo Bills. That being said, last year he showed some inconsistencies. Granted, first year in Cromer's offense, um, had a rough COVID season, you know, a couple of years before that. He's had in his tenure as the Bills, I would say, two, maybe three outstanding seasons. And then the rest a li- rife with a little bit of inconsistency and middling play. I love Dawkins. I think an extension makes a lot of sense. I am not convinced, though, depending on the length of the extension, that Dawkins will remain at tackle through the end of his Bills career. I see to- as, as he gets to the twilight of his playing days, JJ, him kicking into guard potentially, replacing Connor McGovern once that contract is up. But right now, according to SpotTrack, an extension for Dawkins at the tackle position would average $18 million per year. Now, for those listening at home, an extension would mean that, yes, over the course of the contract, he's making $18 million per year. But this year in the negotiations, Bean would lower his current $16.6 million cap it way below that mark and then tack money onto the back end of it, right? So the contract would age as Dawkins age and he would get more money towards the back end of it, lowering his cap hit for this year and creating room. I, The investment in Dawkins to me, JJ, makes sense as long as he stays at tackle. If he's going to kick into guard, though, I question how many years you tack onto an extension to make it meaningful. W- what is your take on that? Um, I'm of the opinion that you can count on Deion Dawkins for three more years beyond this so like 24 25 26 i think that that's reasonable even if he has to slide into guard for the last year of his deal and i think if you gave him an incentive laden plate you know incentive laden contract for the next two with snaps roster bonuses playtime bonuses those sorts of things he'd probably jump at that because he has the kind of confidence in himself that he would be able to do it also if you've kind of followed some of the Dawkins stuff off the field and, and interviews media time he is definitely, I, I think that even though you've mentioned his inconsistent play, I think anything, at any tone of like moving on from Deion Dawkins, you're going to take a hit in the locker room. He is beloved on that line and he is a leader amongst that that line, especially if we're going to do anything with Mitch Morse, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, you need to keep that leadership in the room and Dawkins is it. He's a two-time, you know, Walter, Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee from the Bills. Um, he's a three to- three consecutive year Pro Bowler. I know we talk about the Pro Bowl not meaning much, but still, you know, he's there. Um, he's well regarded in the league. He has probably had his best season, as you mentioned. I think that you extend him and you drop that cap hit from sixteen million to, you know, three or four million with bonuses and those sorts of things, and end up with the next three years of that deal being an $18 million average, $17 million average, because that would be in line with some of the deals signed by McGlinchey, David Bakhtiari, some of those guys who, who've who recently signed in the past two or three years um, and at around the same age and around the same production. Bakhtiari with the Green Bay, though, that, you know, he did not live up to that deal because he got that immediately injured. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but at the time he signed it, he was what, 29 years old, 30 years old, kind of like where Deion Dawkins is. And Something one of the like best, that, yeah. The, the, the best left tackle in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the case for Dawkins. I'd say he's a top five, top 10 at worst tack, left tackle in the league, but he's up there and I think he deserves it. Um, and as I mentioned before, one of the, one of the pieces that, we the bills are going to have to look at and i think that you know i listened to the centered on buffalo podcast uh eric woods um piece which is excellent with mitch morse 
Um, Mitch Morse, the way he talked about this offseason, he is under contract still this year, but the Bills would save about $8.5 million if they just outright cut Mitch Morse from that contract. Um, either they they will go back to him for a you know pay cut kind of re, retooling of that deal, or they will cut him. I think this offseason, because the way he was talking about it, he was like, ah, you know, I know, I know, there's a business, there's business decisions to be made. You know, I understand our cap uh, is not the great greatest right now. So the way he was talking, I wonder if he's already been having some of those conversations. He might not be on the team, especially when they have Ryan Bates, who's you know four or five million dollars per year on the books right now. Um, and ready to slide in at that center position. Yeah, Morse is a a handful of cut candidates where it wouldn't necessarily be easy, I think, for the fan base to tolerate, but from a business and team-building decision makes a lot of sense. The Bills clearly have a plan for what they want to do um, in the first round. I'm, I'm starting to get that sense by listening to some of our, our Bills beat writers and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think, even if an elite center was was available at 28, I don't think they want to spend that draft pick, that capital, on a Mitch Morris replacement. So I agree with you. I think if they were to cut Morris, Ryan Bates is your plan to fill in at center, and then you're taking a fourth, fifth, or even sixth-round flyer on an interior offensive lineman that you can grow in Cromer's system and get ready to be the long-term Mitch Morris replacement as well. So Morris, dude, he seems to me like a pretty reasonable candidate for a uh, for a a straight out cut. There is a world where they kick some money down the road a little bit and they do a base salary conversion. But to me, kicking any money down the road on Mitch Morris, granted, love Mitch Morris. He's been a, a linchpin of that of that offensive line unit for years. He's got an injury history. He's got a concussion history, and injury luck only follows you so long and this bill's offensive line was remarkably healthy in the 2023 season i think it would be foolish for them to count on that same level of just luck when it came to the injury when it came to the injury situation for the offensive line so i think getting younger particularly at the center position and the interior position makes a lot of sense and thereby cutting mitch morse makes a lot of sense Another cut candidate to me that seems more than reasonable, JJ, is Naheem Himes. We can free up close to $5 million by cutting him. And when you've already got James Cook on the roster and Ty Johnson is a big candidate for a, a re-sign at this point in free agency, to me, Hines just brings like a duplicative set of skills that you don't need on the roster for that particular cap hit. And I think the Bills need to start getting away from paying guys like Deontay Hardy and Naheem Hines Guys with like special teams viability in the punt return game, five or six million dollars a year, right? Go find a really fast undrafted, un, like undrafted free agent and teach him some of that stuff. Because sinking that level of money into a veteran presence that has a limited impact on the proper offense and impacts maybe only six or seven plays a game on special teams, to me, is not a good investment when you're in the salary cap situation that you're at. So to me, both Hardy and Hines feel like clear-cut candidates as well. A tougher one, JJ, and again, I want to get your take on this, Tredavious White. So the Bills seem pretty committed to letting White get healthy and see where he is going to be at after this Achilles injury kind of kind of runs its course. That being said, he's an aging veteran cornerback. 
that has suffered two devastating lower body injuries over the last three years. He he is due, I think I want I think it's the seventh highest cap number on the Buffalo Bills. It's either sixth or seventh. It's like him and Dawson Knox are are sixth or seventh on there. The Bills can save close it's fifth, to it's fifth it, highest. Fifth highest, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Trey. And he might not even be your CB1 heading in a trade yep. camp, right? With if Razul Douglas stays on the roster. So a restructure I would be open to, but an outright cut would save the Bills the most money against the cap. And this one would be hard. This is Sean McDermott's first ever draft pick for the Buffalo Bills. He's loved within that locker room and within the organization. He loves that team. This would be the epitome of business decision over emotional decision if the Bills were to cut Trey White and save what could be upwards of $7 million against the cap. What are your thoughts on cutting Trey White? Um, My thoughts are that uh, this year's draft, in which the Buffalo Bills have 10 picks, 10 selections, and probably won't use them all. We know how Bean likes to move up and down, or move up. He doesn't like to move down um, as often, but... Uh, there are 10 selections in this year's draft, and there are 67 defensive backs that are going to the NFL Combine in Indy this week or this coming week. Um, I think that, you know, as much as it might hurt because Trey has been such a cornerstone of this team, you know, he's only played, what, like 30 games in three years or something like that. He's not, he hasn't done a, a full season um, in a long time. And so um, I think it's time to, it, it's time to move on. Um, if what you're seeing from Trey White in like June, you know, April, May, June, if you're not, if he doesn't look like he's back to his explosive self or that he'll be able to make it, you know, into training camp on time looking like Trey, I I think you have to move on. I don't think they do anything though right now because they owe him too much. He's too, he's too much of a locker room presence for them to use him as a uh, cap lever especially because the cap has just increased a little bit. I think that that was probably one of their like emergency dial buttons to, to, to bring up and without, you know, a uh, necessary, you know, without the necessity to do so, they won't, they won't have to pull that, pull that lever right now. Yeah. And, you know, as we approach the start of the league year, he is due a roster bonus of 1.5 million to kick off the, the start of the league year. So that's like a quarter of your savings gone right there. And it seems like the Bills are committed to at least keeping him on the roster through that start date. And I agree with you. I think this increase in cap is going to be used as a a reason slash excuse for Bina McDermott to keep him on the roster and see health-wise where he is at. To me, it would be an opportunity to see if you can reconfigure the books to bring back a guy like A.J. Epineza, where you know you desperately need uh, some reinforcements at the edge and along the defensive line generally. Whereas your cornerback room, JJ, again, barring health issues, you extend Razul Douglas, who I think Bill's Mafia fell in love with after his acquisition at the trade deadline. And he is, I think, even with Trey healthy and back in the lineup, the best on-ball producer in that secondary, um, heading into just, you know, pending free agency and what they do in the draft. You've got Christian Benford, who granted, it is trying to to shed the the title of uh, of injury prone. He's been banged up over the past couple of seasons, but when healthy, he's probably their number two. And now you've got a new lease on life for Kyrie Elam under a new secondary coach. Um, you know, it, 
Trey White is going to be battling for your third, maybe fourth spot, and you're going you're to pay him that cap number, to me it feels like if you don't outright cut him, it is irresponsible to keep him on his current contract, and both parties need to mutually agree on some sort of restructure for Trey. Because there's no way you're going to pay your third or fourth guy that and, much money. Well, and this this brings me to you know um, something that I think applies to Trey, and I think it also applies to Von Miller, um, and that is uh, converting re rehashing their deal a little bit to convert some of their guaranteed money into not likely to be earned incentives. So for both Von Miller and Trey, there are opportunities where you can ask the player to bet on themselves for to get some of that money back, and it won't call, it won't count against the cap figure. If you say to Von Miller, we've got a $5 million incentive in your contract. All you have to do is get five sacks this upcoming season. If I'm Von Miller, I, I'm a prideful man. I might take that to earn that $5 million bonus because it's not likely to be earned. He didn't get any sacks this past year. And so, you know, anything that he hasn't done the year, anything a player hasn't done in the prior year can be added to the, uh, the upcoming year's contract as not likely to be earned. And it won't count against the cap this year. It'll count against next year's cap towards money if the player then earns that incentive. And for Trey, that would be um, five games, more than five games played, more than six games played, whatever it was that he went down, um, you know, starting more than six games. You could basically come to him and be like, hey, Trey, we need to put an incentive in your contract for like $8 million that if you play more than eight games, you get it. But if you play, play less than eight games, you do not get it. Um, it's hard for a player, you know, the leverage is definitely in the player's side because he has already got a signed contract that says he doesn't have to do anything. It's guaranteed. Um, but if you put it in the terms of, okay, you're a post June one cut then. And like what team out there is going to pay you even $10 million as a player who hasn't made a full season in two years. And when you were on the field after your ACL looked pretty average pedestrian, um, for most of the season. I think someone like Trey coming off of his injury, his recent injury history, I think someone like Trey is more likely to be open to that than a guy like Von Miller. I think Miller, because so much of his contract is guaranteed at this point and his dead cap hit is what it is if the Bills cut or trade him, I think Von has way more leverage in this situation than a guy like Trey does. Um, I could see, and I could see that being the route that the Bills take to keep a, a beloved locker room face at a price that is a little bit more affordable at that point. So, and you know, there is goodwill between Trey's camp and Bean and the bills. There's a history there. There's a relationship there that I think would feed into getting that done for sure. I, so, so we're talking about these difficult decisions. I agree with you. I think that it's more likely that something happens with Trey than, than Vaughn. Um, I think too, we have to look at a couple other people that the Bills may may move on from. We already talked about Mitch. What about Poyer? I think Poyer is is one that you move on from, especially with the safety market and this secondary draft class shaping up the way that it is. It again, I have said this multiple times, and I'm sorry for the listeners at home if you're sick of me saying this. Poyer and Hyde, two of my favorite players on the squad of the McDermott era, outside of Diggs and outside of Allen. And it will be sad to see them move on. But I also think we all agree that even maybe last season, when some of the age and some of the decline started setting in, you could have made a case for turning over the safety position then. It is time to turn over that role. And I don't want to take for granted 
that when McDermott did with Hyde and Poyer, kind of pulling them out of free agency um, at the points in their, their careers that he did and helping get them to the point that they are. I don't want to take for granted he's going to be able to do that with anybody, but there are some pretty skilled safeties in this year's free agency class. And there's a couple of guys who you and I have already talked about in Cooper DeJean, Cole Bishop, um, kid out of Minnesota, Tyler Linden, what? Newbin. Newbin. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of guys we've already talked about who could be had in the later rounds as well. I think, again, business decision, not emotional decision. It is time to fully move on from Hyde and Poyer and reconfigure that safety room. But I wouldn't necessarily do it with all rookies because of how how valued that position is in McDermott's scheme. But we can talk about that when we get to more burning questions about free agents we'd like to see come in. Because I think this is a year where you sign a, a toolsy free agent who you think fits your system and you can coach up. And you also take a shot on a rookie in the draft as well. Yeah, well, and, and I do think that, you know, I think for Poyer, the likely the likely path is like he may be, Brandon Bean may say, hey, Poe, we, we love you. Our cap is incomplete. You know, we're, we're in trouble here. We're going to cut you, but keep us in mind. We have, you know, we have some money. We'll, we'll always hold aside for your veteran presence. It's just the numbers got to be right. And he might, it might be, because that's exactly what happened last offseason. Poyer left. He, he was not re-signed, not extended. He left, and they basically said, here is our um, our number, and eventually the market didn't bear out for him, and he came back for the money they were willing to pay. And, you know, there's a chance, too, that Poyer says, I'm not, you know, I'm not willing to take less than this amount, and I'll just retire. And that's that's another, you know, that's another path. But I agree. I think that, you know, just by uh, restructuring Josh Allen, uh, restructuring some of Connor McGovern's money, some of Ed Oliver's money, some of Ryan Bates' money again. Players we know will be on the team that that are younger and in earlier in their careers. Um, cutting Sam Martin, cutting Naeem Hines, cutting Jordan Poyer, cutting Deontay Hardy, uh, restructuring some of Matt Milano's money, restructuring some of Dawson Knox's money, cutting Mitch Morse. That's plus eight million dollars for the Bills. And JJ, there is a way that they could add another nineteen million to that number as well. Oh, do and tell. That- and this brings us on to our second offseason burning question. Do the Buffalo Bills trade Stefan Diggs this offseason? So let's set the table. We are not contributing to the media noise around Diggs's alleged unhappiness in Buffalo, his alleged unhappiness with McDermott, um, his, his alleged, you know, whatever rocky relationship the media is trying to falsely paint between him and Allen. We are simply stating... From a production standpoint, his production fell off a cliff towards the end of last season. He was still top five in the league in targets. He was number one in target share on the team. He was averaging eight targets a game, but he was running shorter routes. He was doing less after the catch than at any point in his career with those routes. And where shorter routes, because of the ease of completion, tends to lead to a higher catch rate, his catch rate actually got worse this season, despite the fact that he was running more man- a more manageable route tree than he had at any other point. Diggs is set to hit the Bills for a, the num- their number two cap hit. I think it's upwards of $25 million next season, right? 27.8. 27.8. There we go. If the, he is a post-June 1 trade, so this means no draft picks in the 2024 draft if you're trading Diggs for picks after June 1, 
you're doing so for the 2025 draft in April. Um, but if you trade Diggs after June 1, you save $19 million against the cap and you only absorb a dead cap hit of about $8 million. Aaron Schatz for ESPN uh, recently wrote an article about bold moves all 32 NFL teams could make this offseason to reset their window. Trading Diggs was his bold move for Buffalo. JJ, his production notably was not there at the end of this season. We speculated that he was potentially injured. Regardless of that, he is now 30. No quarterback in league history has gone from a 1,400-yard season to uh, an 1,100-yard season, which he had this year, to then reclaim the heights of that 1,400-yard year. So all metrics would indicate and all previous wide receiver history would indicate that Diggs is at the beginning of his career decline. He will never have more trade value than he has now, and the Bills could use that $19 million savings. So is this the offseason we see Stefan Diggs traded? Uh, absolutely not. And not because I wouldn't do it. I probably would do it, but not. Th- it, it is not because of specifically the departure of Gabe Davis and the wide receiver room as it stands not having an alpha dog and no guarantees that somebody they pick in the draft is going to be able to replace that production. I think that even though it was a decline and even though I think we both, anyone who watches the the Bills and especially watches the Bills in the playoffs the last three years can tell you that Stefan Diggs is too easily erased and Stefan Diggs tends to disappear in big moments. Um, the past couple of years, I just do not see a path where the Bills, especially because in order to have a trade partner in that exchange, somebody has to be willing to take on that albatross of a contract, which was just extended last offseason. The Bills just committed to him after his massive year, and I just don't see another GM out there who's going to say, yeah, you know what, I want to pay almost quarterback money for a wide receiver on the wrong side of 30 who has just had a down year and who has completely underperformed in all of the biggest moments that this, that the bills have presented. Yeah. It's just, for me, it's the same kind of thing. Like it's just, you know, the, the bills fans out there screaming about, you know, we need to cut Von Miller. The people in the media who are claiming that even a post June one trade of Stefan Diggs is on the table are over presumptuous that there is anyone in the world that will take that deal. I don't think there is. I don't, I don't think there's a team. I agree with you, his trade value is as high as it will be, but I will say at that contract, his trade value is not, it's it's not, on, it's not there. I agree. I don't think you're getting a first round draft pick for Diggs at this stage. And also post June 1. So first wave of free agency is done. So you're not getting that cap savings until you, until you make that deal. That means T Higgins is gone. Kelvin Ridley is gone. Any top flight wide receiver free agent that you could take that digs money and then bring in another alpha, as you say, or another number one wide receiver in that moment is going to be off the table at that point. The draft, because you're not getting draft capital to use this season, you're talking about potentially mortgaging all a good chunk of your 10 picks this year to try to trade up to get Odunze or Marvin Harrison Jr., who I don't think is ever going to be a possibility. Uh, or Malik neighbors. But then, and you mentioned this, and I think it's a great point, you're now taking away two of the most familiar targets Allen has had throughout the course of his career in Allen and Diggs and Davis at the same time and replacing it with rookie unknowns or free agent unknowns. I don't think the Bills, regardless of where Diggs is at, 
and his ability to perform at this point are going to make that move. You don't gain the the benefit is too is too kicked down the road, right? It's too furloughed to to happen have any meaningful impact this season because it's not really going to play into your free into your free agent um free agent calculation at all. So for me, I think you keep Diggs on the roster and explore potentially this next season. Well, and I think absolutely you're right about exploring next season. The reason that we're talking about a post-June 1 is because the dead cap to trade him before June 1 this season is obscene. And so you're basically, you'd have to push it past, you know, past June 1, June 1 so you can spread out that dead cap hit over two years. Um, and really that is the kind of thing that, you know, if, if we're talking about that at all, that means the real window for trading digs is next season. And I think that that is actually more likely. I think that if you go in the draft and within the first three rounds you pick one or two wide receivers and one of them pans out to be gobbling up targets and getting close to a thousand yards in the season and you have what you consider the production you need to replace digs um then i think you're in in the world where okay maybe they're trading him during the free agency period before the draft and they're getting a pick in that year's draft class so that you're replacing production with production you know straight in front of you um, in another new rookie. I think that's more likely, and especially with the way the contract is structured, there's just no, it's more palatable for the trading partner as well. Um, the Bills trading the, what was it, the 20, 22nd or 7th, I think it was 22nd pick in the draft that they used for Justin Jefferson. Minnesota yeah, 22nd. Did. It was the yeah. 22nd overall. So trading that 22nd pick for Diggs was trading for a receiver with, I believe at the time, he had two years left on his deal between 11 and $14 million a year, which is like incredibly well um, affordable for a, a wide receiver one. And I think the Bills definitely got their value. I think that both parties really won in that trade. And there's no guarantee that Justin Jefferson would have been the incredible talent he's been in Buffalo, you know, learning on the fly with a rookie quarterback um, or a young quarterback as opposed to Kirk Cousins, and everyone's like, well, Josh Allen's better than Kirk Cousins. I don't disagree, but, you know, ever, anyone who wants to say, like, apples to apples comparison, a player in any on any team is going to have the same career, just hasn't watched the league long enough. It's it's There's so many variables, the room, the coaching, um, the fit, the the people around them, the opponents they play, which is another piece, like the, the CB talent in that division uh, is not super elite. So uh, I think all of that said... Um, the Diggs trade to the Buffalo was mutually beneficial. Diggs trade anywhere else this season is going to benefit the Bills more than any other team. Are you saying my alternate Brandon Bean draft universe <laughs> would not have played out in a, in a Buffalo Bills Super Bowl I'm and they had A.J. Brown and Justin I'm Jefferson? I'm saying there's no How guarantee. Dare you, sir. There's no guarantee <laughs> Justin Jefferson's a uh, first-team All-Pro in the Bills on his in his first year. We're going to have words in the text chain That's, after the spot yeah, is over. Yeah, bring it. <laughs> All right, so I think we can I think we can put a pin in the digs conversation. This feels more like media stoking the flames of oh, just yeah. like off season, uh, anything in the off season cycle to kind of get a reaction or get clicks, clicks. or anything like yeah. that. Digs is not going anywhere. There is next to no benefit for the Bills on or off the field to do that at this point. So JJ, let's wrap up the this set of burning questions with one about free agency. So we know the cap number. We know that the Buffalo Bills have several free agents from Daquan Jones to AJ Appeneza to Ty Johnson and potentially Taylor Rapp, they'd like to bring back to the squad. But there are also a host of other free agents that now, maybe more than ever, 
will be in the bill's financial range to acquire that also meet a position of need for them. So let's keep the guys who, uh, currently wearing bill's uniforms out of it. If you were to bring in one free agent this offseason to the Buffalo Bills, who would it be and why? Um, so I, I, we both, I think we both, when we talked, you know, setting the table a few pods ago for the Bills, we, we both brought up some names. And I'd just like to rehash one one point from that conversation, and that is if you're expecting the Bills to get a number one wide receiver or number two wide receiver or a number one starting level pass rusher, it's not happening in free agency. It is going to happen through the draft. The only positions of great great value and need that the Bills have right now that are capable of getting starters, in my opinion, through free agency are safety and defensive tackle. So that's that's my first kind of caveat of why the name I pick is the name I pick. And then two is that we're not going to be shopping, even with the increase of the salary cap, with all the moves they have to make, even just to get compliant, we're not shopping in the, you know, Antoine Winfield Jr. market for, and, and I think Brandon Bean said as much when he, you know, got roasted on online for saying we're not shopping on Main Street in New York City, not knowing where the actual stores in, Main, in, in New York City are. Um, which is fine because, you know, that's not his, his purview anyway. That makes three of us on this. <laughs> I know. Yeah, right. Um, and so I think that for me, it's I think the need is greater at defensive tackle than at safety, in my opinion, in terms of free agents, in terms of today, like we need a starter now on the roster. Um, and I we all know, you know, Daquan Jones isn't part of this because we, we agreed not to talk about re-signings. I think that Maurice Hurst, uh, who just played at Cleveland. 28 years old, probably a vet minimum deal, if not a couple mil over three to four million per year. Um, he is, a, it's kind of redundant because he's a bit of a three tech interior pass rusher, but he can, he does have the flexibility to slide over and play at one. He's only 290, um, so he's sub 300. And so he's not going to be your anchor in the run game, but he has had an injury riddled career. He has, but he was incredibly well rounded this past season in, in his like, analytics both against the run and the past and is somebody that's probably not going to demand the, the top of the top of the market money so that's my choice is uh is maurice hurst and we know we know even though he he projects to be more like basically your tim settle replacement right like we know that the bills just need bodies along that defensive line right now and i go safety for this and it's following along the strategy jj of turning the page on the poyer and hyde years bringing in a veteran safety to either anchor your strong or free safety position and then draft and within the first three rounds, uh, a safety of the future. So for me, I'm between Alohi Gilman and Jeremy Chin, and I gravitate more towards Chin because I think he is your logical kind of box safety replacement for Jordan Poyer. Um, that is the role that they started to kind of turn him into in Carolina. Granted, he's got an injury history. He's coming. I think he's only played what four or five games this season, something like that. Right. So he's coming off of a, a bit of an injury bug this season. But I think when you look at the totality of his contributions to that defense in Carolina, what has been a young defense for many, many years, in a lot of ways, he was a stabilizer for that unit. And I think that is the value that McDermott and now Babich place on that secondary as the stabilizers. I also think he has more utility than he is getting credit for in the scouting department 
for his ability to kind of play free range and play center field as well. I think there's a surprising amount of versatility to his game, and I'd like to see Jeremy Chen on the roster. Yeah, uh, and and because I knew from from pre-potting that you were going to go safety, I chose to go DT. Um, and I envy you because there are, I think, as we talked in in a, in a previous pod, there are three. You know, if they don't bring Taylor Rapp back, there's Julian Blackman, Alohi Gilman, and Jeremy Chin, who are all safeties I'm interested in. Jeremy Chin oh, yeah. being kind of like interchangeable, Alohi Gilman being a lot much more deep third. Um, free-ranging safety, and then Julian Blackman being typecast as a strong safety, but uh, but could also, I think, range the middle. So, is there a is there a world where they bring in both Gilman and Chin? Do you think? Like we're we're all we're all committed yeah. to like bringing in at least one rookie safety who you yeah. can grow in the system. But like they brought in Poyer and Hyde in the same year. Yeah, I mean, do they do they just do this? Do they just like redo that whole historic thing and bring in Gilman and Chin? Do they do that? I don't think so, and the reason they don't is because I believe that this offseason you're going to see Cam Lewis getting an opportunity to start. I think uh, they're going to give him the chance to be the the person in the room who knows the system and, and get that starting position. I feel like that would be a mistake, don't you? Yeah, I we, do too. We've seen <laughs> we've enough seen, of Cam seen, Lewis. Yeah, we've seen a, a bit of Cam Lewis, and I don't know that he's the guy, but... um. Yeah, I mean that's you're probably right. They're they're loyal to a fault with a they lot of these are guys. They definitely they take loyal. a flare on. Yeah. Yes. Yep. L- loyal to a fault. Yeah, without a doubt. All right, JJ. So now speaking of coaching and speaking of development, it, there is a new trio of uh lead coaches for the Buffalo Bills. One, a familiar face in Sean McDermott, uh, much to the chagrin of many Bills mafia mafia faithful, but McDermott will get another season. Didn't even seem like his seat at any point was all that warm based on the level of support he got from Pagula um, and the ownership team. So he brings in now two coordinators. So the second season in a row, basically, he's turning over the, the coordinator room fully. Joe Brady getting the full-time job on offense. And now Bobby Babich getting the full-time job on defense. JJ, what are you expecting to see from this new coaching trio? Well, I think that, you know, I think we started to see what the Joe Brady offense would look like. And what that looked like to me is a uh, ball distribution, run heavy attack that involved a lot of different concepts in terms of the running running attack. And I think one thing that Joe Brady did, I think, better than um, than the previous offensive coordinator who they fired, whose name escapes me. Help me. Help. I've already forgotten all about the shamed Ken Dorsey. There we are. Um, so the one thing I think about Brady that, that'll be different is that he leaned into working um, with Aaron Cromer in the offensive line in really developing some different approaches and avenues uh, to you know, running the football. And so I, I think that, you know, the scheme will evolve a little bit with Joe Brady. And I think that this rushing attack isn't going anywhere. If people are expecting the bills to come out and get back to 60, 70% passing the ball, that's not going to happen because I think Joe Brady is probably going to come up with some more ways that he would like to attack teams by running the ball. And we saw in the Cowboys game that that is effective because the trends in the, in the league are cyclic and the the trend that the, the defenses are in right now is one of, we need to cover all the different passing windows we need to get faster, smaller, lighter. And the Bills expose that as kind of, you know, a lack of preparation 
And that is a really unique way to attack opposing um, defenses is if you're running at them, then they have to get bigger, and then boom, you have play action, you have opportunities to expose some matchups on with tight ends on linebackers and those sorts of things, running backs on linebackers. I think that's what we're going to see from Joe Brady, and I'm excited for it because I think it's a good it's a good way to kind of be ahead of the trends in the league. And then the other thing that I think is going to um, happen is that the um, you know the the move to Bobby Babich is is really how he calls games is a complete wild card. We have no idea what that's going to look like, but how um, how he coaches players and puts players in the best position to succeed, I think is going to be uh, something to behold. And and I really like Babich. I think we both have expressed that we really appreciate they promoted him instead of looking elsewhere for decent defensive coordinator. Whether or not he calls plays or McDermott continues to do so is still up in the air, but I really am excited to see what he can offer. Uh, I have no notes on your take, sir. I'm in full agreement. Um, on the play calling point between Babbage and McDermott, we both agree. I think two things can be true. McDermott was argu- arguably one of the best defensive coordinators in the league this year, especially when you look at some of how the roster was depleted as a result of injuries. He was in his bag and the way that secondary was operating with a lot of these false fronts, a lot of these uh, showing blitz and then pulling back, the coordination and the orchestration that that took was one of the best coordinating jobs I think I can remember seeing as a football fan. But there were other areas that notably were sacrificed. And it was in that CEO type of holistic role that we look for the head coach to fill, where they've got their hand and they've got their attention on every aspect of the game. Most notably, the loss to Denver, 12 men on the field, that kind of stuff. The the amazingly odd usage of James Cook early in the season. Like, we'll remember this is the James Cook breakout year, but there were several games early on where Cook dropped a pass or Cook fumbled and he was sent into, into purgatory for what would have been 13, 14, and 15 plays. McDermott needs to come back to the fold of having his eyes on everything and managing every aspect of the game as the head coach CEO. And to me, that only happens if he gives Babich play-calling responsibilities. Could there be a decline? Could there be a regression for a first-time first time play-caller? Absolutely there could. But here's the thing. McDermott was our play-caller this season, JJ, and we still didn't beat the Chiefs. <laughs> we still didn't get over that hump, right? So again, he did a great job but there are other areas of the team and the coaching staff that suffered as a result. I want to see McDermott turn over full play calling to Babbage. I'm with you. I agree completely. I think that it, this is so this, the, the tone, my like prescription for the bills to be successful in 2024 season is to, is the youth move, movement across the board. That means I don't care about Deontay Hardy or, Naheem Hines contracts, cut them both, save that money, sign somebody late in the draft that's going to be your punt and kick returner and just let it ride, right? Like it is let it ride with Babbage calling plays. It's let it ride with a, a rookie safety if you have to. Let it ride with a rookie wide receiver is in that ever important wide receiver two spot. It's that's my my whole theme of the of the season. If the Bills want to get better, because the the Chiefs who, you know, even Bean has said are two years ahead of the Bills in the in this kind of team building practice. The Chiefs prove that by investing, you know, 
heavily over the course of two drafts in their defense. And now they have one of the best defenses in the league. And it's one of the cheapest defenses in the league because it's also one of the youngest. And that's going to certainly show some problems later. But their cap is balancing in a way where they're going to be able to pay. They're going to let the, you know, the chaff uh, separate from the wheat. And they're going to know who who needs to be paid to really be cornerstone players for the future. And then they just keep reinvesting to fill the rest of the, the spots and roles. Yeah. Couldn't agree more, sir. Couldn't agree more. I have one point I'd like to make on that, you know, um, and and this can lead us into our final point about, uh, you know, wide receiver versus DT in round one. Are we going to fight? I think we're going to fight on this one. <laughs> I look forward to this. No, I, I don't think we are. Um, because no. what I'll say. Have I, you come around to. Oh, please. No, continue. I won't interrupt. Yeah, yeah. The, the, no, this will be good. wonderful. So this is the point. This is the point. Actually, kind of, kind of, you know, I got to give give credit where it's due. I was listening to the, the One Bills Live podcast or uh, radio show and um, Chris Brown on there basically was like the the 49ers could not stop the Chiefs with pass rush. And they have absolutely elite pass rushers. Eric Armstead, um, you know, Nick Bosa. Uh, they had uh, Chase Young. Chase Young. Yeah. So like with absolute top of the top of the t- talent level pass rushers, they could not get to Patrick Mahomes in a way that really shut down that offense. So why bother continuing to invest in defensive linemen to try to affect the pass rush when what you need to do to get past these Chiefs is just overwhelm them and outscore them? Their defense is, is an upper echelon talent. you got to out-talent them. And so for me, it's wide receiver in the first round, and the only reason, the only way I'm not taking wide receiver is if, um, let's see, if Roma Dunze, Brian Thomas, uh, Adonai Mitchell, Keon Coleman, if none of them are there, I might I might have to take a defensive end or defensive lineman just because of the value. But if any of those kind of top five talents is there, I'm going wide receiver round one. How about you? You know I'm going wide receiver round one. I know. One. And I know. We're not disagreeing in this. I... I... I'm happy we're not disagreeing. A little sad you had to go to outside information, though, when your partner <laughs> on the pod has been saying this all along. Has been saying this all along, right? Um, but that's fine. That's fine. I'll take I'll I'll take the the credit where I can get it, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, no, dude, it's it's wide receiver. Josh Allen is your window, and I agree. I agree to an extent too that investing in that secondary and investing in coverage, albeit not in round one, is also important too. The strategy of trying to get to someone who is as well protected, but also as elusive and aware as Mahomes is a tall task. And there is no one in free agency or this draft that are going to be better than Bosa, Armstead, and Young that you're going to add to the squad, right? So it is false hope to think that simply by reinvesting in the line, you're all of a sudden going to fix this seven-year problem that you've had and trying to rattle and trying to pressure and bring down Mahomes. Here is where you can get to Mahomes. When the ball is out of his hand, and then your window, my good friend, is Joshua Patrick Allen. Yes. And it is time to invest in keeping that window open. This team has asked Allen to do, granted, I know he's had digs, but this team has asked him to do literally more than anyone else in the league when it comes to producing for this offense. It is time to understand that if you're going to beat Mahomes to a large extent, you've got to take the person who is arguably the second best QB of this generation 
And you've got to invest in the tools and the methods in order to help him get over that hump too. How nice would it be if for once the Bills had the ball last in a game against the Chiefs as opposed to the Chiefs having the ball last? That happens if you get an offense that can sustain drives and not just put up field goals against this now very, very formidable Chiefs defense, but can also score touchdowns. Josh got the least defensive production out of his unit this year against any other team that faced Mahomes and did the best offensively by every metric you could imagine. Better than Purdy, better than Lamar Jackson, and better than Tua. And it still wasn't enough. They've got to find a way to squeeze those margins on the edge on offense so that the game doesn't come down to Tyler Bass king a field goal. It's Josh Allen in the red zone with a multitude of options to put six on the board instead of three. It is time to shift the thinking and start to build around your franchise QB. I, I mean, I just I'm, I'd just start a slow clap if literally it was anyone to join me. Um, that was perfect. Perfectly said. Um, lean into offense. I think the Bills did the absolute best of any team against the Chiefs in the playoffs because they kept them freaking off the field. They did ball control. They, they controlled the clock. That's, that is how you beat them, is you make sure he doesn't have the opportunity to impact the game because he is the Michael Jordan of this this era. Absolutely, dude. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for allowing me to go on that soliloquy. And it was great. <laughs> your, agreement, your agreement on wide receiver one uh, is appreciated. Uh, fear not, though, fans. JJ and I are going to argue about Daquan Jones in March when the, the ability to do so oh, comes absolutely. up. It's going to, dude, it's going to be fiery. It's going to be fiery. <laughs> Although I'm laying the seeds for that right now. I just went on my rant about how like, yeah, the pass rush and blah, blah, blah is never going to get to him. Invest in coverage, right? I'm I'm slowly going to wear you down on that angle too. So yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But JJ, fun going through burning questions with you for this Bills offseason. Um, and now with the new salary cap figure, a little bit more juice to free agency, I think, than we were expecting as Bills fans as well. So for those of you who are listening right now, please stay tuned because directly after this, we are tacking on our second of three segments, Friends of the Pod, Not Friends of the Bills. We're uh, talking with our good friend and resident Patriots expert, Brandon Bennett, about his take on the Patriots offseason and how they rebuild after the Belichick years to become a formidable AFC East foe for the Bills yet once again. Uh, it was a great interview. It was a great time talking to Brandon. Please stay tuned for that at the end of this. And for all of you listening at home, as always, like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast: Google, Apple, Spotify. And as always, go Bills. Go Bills. Welcome back to Buffalo Bread, a Buffalo Bills fan podcast. I am your host, Dan Roberts, joined today by Brandon Bennett, our resident New England Patriots expert. He is here for the second installment of our annual off-season pod rotation of Friends of the Pod, not Friends of the Bills. So today, Brandon is going to be with us to focus on what he feels like the New England Patriots do to unseat the now four-time AFC East champion, Buffalo Bills. Brandon, how you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you for uh, for having me back on the pod. I appreciate it. Hey, no problem. You're you're one of our favorites. Not only 
Have you been a reliable go-to for New England Patriots banter and feedback and thoughts? But you've also actually, you are one of our few guest hosts that have hosted the regular show when me or JJ has been out of commission due to illness or family stuff. So uh, you, sir, are a reliable potter, and we appreciate your presence back here with us. So, um, Brandon, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but we have had an influx of new listeners to the pod as the Buffalo Bread community continues to grow. So I know you've been on the pod quite a few times, but I want to kick it over to you to give you an opportunity to reintroduce yourself to some of our new listeners. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came about your New England Patriots fandom? Yeah, well, you're, you are always a very gracious host um, and, and always a pleasure to chat with. Um, so I'm happy to entertain the listeners of the Buffalo Bread Nation out here. Um, I became a Patriots fan in 2007, uh, that season where they went undefeated and then lost the Super Bowl against the Giants. Um, I was a, a freshman in college at that time, and uh, everybody in the room that was watching the Super Bowl, they were rooting against the Patriots. And so being the squeaky wheel that I was, I, I said, you know what, let's uh, <laughs> let's root for them. And then that was sort of the beginning. Um, I then had the pleasure to, to live in Boston for a number of years uh, during some of those championship years attend a couple of those victory parades and the send-off parades. And so that's where it sort of really got kind of ingrained in me. Very nice. An antagonistic contrarian is how you came about your Patriots fandom. I love it, man. Absolutely love it. Well, we're going to dig into it a little bit here to talk about your squad. Um, I want to give you a chance to kind of summarize your thoughts on how the season went. But before we do, it is noteworthy to state that we're recording this after the Super Bowl. Uh, we're recording this a couple of days afterwards. The dust has settled. The Chiefs dynasty has risen. And I feel that you, as a fan of the most recent dynasty in the NFL, the New England Patriots, I felt it fair and good timing to let you offer your thoughts on not just the Super Bowl, but kind of how you see the Chiefs right now in this stage of their dynasty compared to your guys. So why don't we dig into the Super Bowl a little bit? What were your thoughts after you after the game was over, Brandon? Yeah, so obviously the Patriots have been really bad the last couple of years, and Patriots fans have been eating their humble pie. Uh, and really can't say anything. But during the peak years where, you know, we're kind of back-to-back Super Bowl champions and all that vitriol and hate towards the Patriots was really popular at the time, um, my mentality was you hate us because you ain't us. And now I know what it's like because I was rooting hard against Kansas City. Um, really, the person I wanted to win a Super Bowl was Christian McCaffrey. So that was a little disappointing. And, you know, I felt sad for him because I felt like the team um, was kind of put on his back throughout the entire season. Uh, he won, uh, what was it, Offensive Player of the Year, I think, or yep. Running Back of the Year. Yeah. Um, and then I felt like in the Super Bowl, they just did not give him the opportunities that I think he deserved. And I, I think that was a key to their, their loss there. So, uh, really surprising Super Bowl, really boring first three quarters. And then it started to get a little bit exciting, um, once it got tied 16, 16. So, yeah, I, the McCaffrey thing is interesting. There are, there are two arguments going on on Twitter, which is Kyle Shanahan abandoned the run. And then a lot of the football nerds are like, well, no, Spags shut down the run. He was showing mm -hmm. a lot. He was showing a lot of heavy boxes, a lot of run blitz looks. 
So, you know, the thought there from the football nerds is that Shanahan made the only adjustment that he could, which is go to Brock Purdy and go to some of these amazing weapons they have on the outside in Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk. But those two guys were shut down by um, Trent McDuffie and uh, Sneed, respectively. So in a lot of ways, like these were two squads who put their best up against the other guy's best. And the Chiefs were simply better on the field of play in that game. Like Shanahan has taken a lot of smoke to me for this game, especially with his OT management. Let's keep in mind, I believe this is the first time we have had playoff OT since the um, since the 13th second game. So this is the first time that these new playoff rules for OT where both teams get a possession really factored in. And there were a lot of unknowns. So Shanahan took a lot of smoke, I think, for taking the ball. He took a lot of smoke for allegedly going away from the run, which in fairness, tying it back to the Patriots and that epic 28 to three comeback in the Super Bowl against the Shanahan coordinated um, uh, Atlanta Falcons. He did go away from the run in that game. But I think here it was more about Spags just being like, listen, if you're going to beat me, you're going to beat me with the Mr. Irrelevant seventh round pick and Brock Purdy. I'm not going to let your best beat me. And I, that's what, how Spags rolls in these big games, man. And I thought, I'd love your take on this. The Chiefs, listen, throw flowers at their feet. Let them walk upon rose petals as they go to claim another Lombardi trophy. But this year out of all the years, it felt like teams were, were let, letting them get away. Like yeah. when you look at, I don't want to call it luck, but when you look at the fact that the Chiefs fumbled the ball, what was it, five times, six times yeah. in this game and recovered five of those fumbles. And then you look at the miscues on the punt, for example, from San Francisco, the muffed punt the fumble by McCaffrey early on that, that the Chiefs recovered. It just looked like the Chiefs were t taking better advantage of the miscues of San Francisco. And this is the thing you always have to worry about with Patrick Mahomes. And I know as a Bills fan, it's in my head. You don't want to give this guy the ball in an advantageous position. Every time the Bills would drive um, against Kansas City since the 13 seconds game, I always ask myself, if the Bills are driving here and they score, how much time that does that leave Mahomes? Is that enough time? Because you just always feel like if you give this guy the ball with an opportunity, he's going to deliver on the other end. It, his comp to me is not Brady. It's Michael Jordan. That's the vibe I get by watching Mahomes. And I feel like just having, knowing that that guy can score from anywhere on the field in any given amount of time, no matter what the lead is, it ingrains into other teams, I think, this mental disadvantage that they are not only forcing themselves to play perfect ball so that Mahomes doesn't get the ball back, but they're also forcing themselves, they're forcing themselves <clears throat> to play out of character as well. They're allowing Mahomes and his success to dictate their game script in a lot of ways. And I've never seen in my life, even all due respect to your boy Tom Brady, never seen a QB walk into a game with that kind of mental edge. But I think Mahomes is there. And watching that game, it cemented it for me. Because I think in a lot of ways, San Francisco played better for the first three quarters than Kansas City did, but they also made more mistakes. And if you let Kansas City hang around and you don't play perfect ball against them, Mahomes is event eventually going to get a shot within striking distance of the score. And more often than not, he delivers on it. Like he's just, it's he's an amazing mental advantage 
and the Kansas City Chiefs as a result, no matter how undermanned they are, they're forcing you to play perfect football. And San Francisco just didn't. And I think that's why they lost. I I think, you know, part of the story of the, the you know, first three quarters of the game was how mentally shaken the Chiefs seemed. Uh, they Like they didn't seem prepared to be in a Super Bowl game and oh, seemed yeah. really nervous with the amount of mistakes that they were making. They were obviously... Pressing. You saw, you know, Travis Kelsey rushing up to Andy Reid and almost knocking him over, telling him to, you know, get him in the game. You saw Mahomes and Rashi Rice getting in an argument because Rashi was wide open, would have been a touchdown. They would have scored and ended the game right there. But Mahomes is forcing the ball to his uh, his buddy Kelsey um, for an incompletion in the end zone. So you see all these mistakes and guys eating each other apart and, um that's blood in the water. You know what I mean? Like as the opponent, you're seeing that team rip into each other and it should have, should have been a victory for the 49ers. But to your point, Mahomes stuck through and and got him, got him the victory. So they do. If you don't put this team away in the first three quarters and it's close in the fourth, Mahomes, it Mahomes is like an inherent advantage. Like dude has ice in his veins. So yeah, man, but, First three quarters, the Chiefs, Trey Wingo put out an interesting tweet, um, football analyst that I that I follow on Twitter, X, whatever the hell you want to call it. He was like, the Chiefs are doing what the Ravens did in the AFC Championship game, which is lose their composure and lose their identity. But that squad is so well coached. Like Andy Reid, it is, it is hard to describe how good a coach that dude is. And Steve Spagnuolo on the defensive end, while the players may have been losing their composure, the coaching staff was not. They kept things together. Spags called a great defensive game plan against what was a really, really good offense to keep them in it long enough to let Mahomes do Mahomes things at the end of the game, and that's really what it was. Um, yeah. we, got, we got five quarters of football effectively in this game. Three of it was borderline unwatchable, but the last two really made for an entertaining outing. And again, the Chiefs, I feel like, escaped with one. No, no shade at them. They were epic at taking advantage of other teams' mistakes this season, right? But they didn't. They man, this feels like the year where everyone let them get away because yeah. now they're going to hit the draft. They're going to bring in some wide receiver help. They're going to fix their tackle issue. They got a young defense. This feels like the year they could have got got, and that the entire league missed the opportunity. Yeah, I you know I think you look at it simply as Patrick Mahomes had the most rushing yards of anybody on the team against. Christian McCaffrey, those two facts alone would lead you to think that the 49ers won, but um, just not the case. Yeah, just not the case, man. So so yet again, we see Patrick Mahomes raise the Lombardi trophy. And uh, I will tell you, as a Bills fan, it is pure hell because I spent 20 years rooting against your squad that tortured <laughs> my, 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 uh, my formative years. And now I find myself with... Arguably, the second best QB, not just in the league, but I would say of this generation of QBs and Josh Allen, I find that I've got that guy and it's still not enough. And I'm mired now in my my declining years, I think. After you hit 40, it's all downhill. My declining years, I am now stuck in the middle of another dynasty. Though I will say to the Chiefs' credit, uh, and this has a lot to do with Andy Reid and Travis Kelsey, I find the Chiefs far more likable than I ever found the Patriots. <laughs> this is true. I, I mean, there's been a lot of negativity around them uh, between Taylor Swift and then 
that video that came out uh, when they played the Ravens and Mahomes and Kelsey were messing with Justin Tucker's um, tee when he was practicing his kicks. And oh yeah, a lot of folks not being too impressed with that behavior. So I think there's been a lot of negativity swirling around them um, this season, especially with so much at his wideouts and oh, stuff yeah. like that on oh, the yeah. sideline. Oh yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, crazy stuff, dude. Crazy stuff, but. Again, I hated Tom Brady and Belichick, and I will continue mm. to hate them to this day. So I'm talking in relative scales for me as a Bills fan. What I really want to see is a Bills dynasty. That's what I want to talk about. But sadly, we'll have to wait another year to, to begin that. So thank you for your thoughts on the Super Bowl, my friend. Let's transition from our current dynasty in the Kansas City Chiefs to our most recent dynasty in your New England Patriots. So, Brandon, you guys are coming off a... It, it, probably your worst season under Belichick since he took over the team uh, way back when. And you've now moved on from Belichick, your team in transition. You're searching for a lot of pieces, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. But give me your thoughts as a Patriots fan on the season of 2023. You finished 4-13. and Belichick has now moved on, will not be coaching this year. Um, you've now been a fan long enough to see Tom Brady retire from your squad and now enter the booth for Fox. So he's now into the media end of his career. So you've seen that whole arc kind of play out with the greats of your dynasty, and now you're moving on to a new phase. So give me a sense for what it was like to watch the Patriots play football this year and what you're hoping for this offseason. Yeah, it was painful. Um, and I it, it was. Um, there were a lot of games that, you know what's weird? I, I think we won the games that we should have lost, and then we lost the games that we should have won. Um, here, here. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and it, it it was just, you know, hard to be a fan. It, it, all the conflict between um, Mac Jones and Bill Belichick, and is it going to be Jones this week? Is it going to be Zappy? You know, it, it was just a lot of drama, um, and it's just, you know, not sustainable as a team. And so... I understand the the Belichick move. I was sad about it when it happened just because I have only been a Patriots fan under Bill Belichick. So, you know, it, it is sort of the the dawn of a new era for uh, me as a fan. And I think for sure the Patriots as a team, because so much of the identity over the last 20 plus years has been Bill Belichick. Um, but the youth of Gerard Mayo is very exciting. Um, I think it is really the beginning of a new chapter uh, for the organization and, and we'll see what happens. Um, the third overall pick in the draft is the highest the franchise has had in the last 31 years since Rob Kraft uh, purchased the team. So I, I think there's a lot of exciting things that are going to happen this offseason. I, I think the team overall in shifting to Mayo is going to be also shipping off uh, some of the older uh, players and identities on the team. Um, and looking to bring a lot of youth to the roster ahead of next season. Absolutely. I think youth is going to be the key for you guys. You're going to get a squad, and you've got the cap space to also raise the floor of this team with some smart veteran additions and investments in free agency as well. But I think you guys are really drafting a QB and then drafting an, really an offense that's going to grow together over the next several seasons. And offense really is what it was about with you guys in 2023, man. I've got some some rankings I'm going to run down for you here real quick. Offensive DVOA, 
you guys rank 29th in the league. Yards per drive, 31st in the league. And then points per drive, 32nd in the league. This is one of the worst offenses that has been fielded under the Belichick area. This was worse than the Matt Patricia-led offensive attack last season, if you can wrap your brain around that somehow, man. You know, for, but I'm for the listeners, ahead. I just want the listeners to know how much you're smiling as you talk about how the Patriots were this but, season. But, but let me tell you, let me tell you, I bet bourbon on your squad to finish second in DVOA in the AFC East. I was drinking the Mac Jones Kool-Aid in, in uh, training camp. I was like, you know, Bill O'Brien is going to come in. He's going to fix it all. It's going to be fine. Patricia was a was a horrible was a horrible thing, and now they're going to course correct, right? Uh, Mac Jones is slinging it to some of these offensive weapons in training camp. I thought you guys were going to be better than the Dolphins and better than the Jets in offensive metrics. And I bet high quality bourbon against my boy JJ, and I I lost. And really, I lost that bet. I would say within week six, when it was pretty clear yeah. that the offense was not going to improve. Yeah. So I yes, I'm smiling a little bit, but know that know that I had faith in your squad right up until I would say about <laughs> about Halloween, and I was like, ah, oh, this is a bad bad idea. I sent JJ his bourbon early because I'm like, yeah, there's no way, there's nice. no way they recover from this. <laughs> so yeah, but no, it's um. Yeah, I mean, it's a little delicious after what you guys just did to me for the last 20 years. But also too like I'm I'm a like I'm also a football fan and I want I want the games to be watchable too. So, offense is something I think you guys got to address for like me as a fan to like find the team watchable again. But defense, dude, you guys were solid. You're you're you got some key pieces like Kyle Duggar and Josh Uche, you got to make some decisions on in free agency. But overall, like your overall defensive DVOA, you guys were a top 10 team. You were number nine. Pass defense, you were 15th, middle of the road. But yards per drive and points per drive, third and seventh respectively. You guys have a young foundation, especially depending on how Christian Gonzalez comes back. Mm -hmm. You guys got a young foundation to build on. You hit on a DB or two in this draft or in free agency. You figure out the safety stuff and you draft well for offense. I feel like you guys, plus you've got the, the first year coach bounce, which teams seem to benefit from. You had yeah. D'Amico Ryans this year, Brian Dayball last year. Um, it feels like you guys with some course correction and some good personnel moves could easily ascend. And that's really what the difficulty for you guys has been. The fact that not Belichick, the coach, but Belichick, the GM really struggled to fill that squad with talent. Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest critiques of Belichick was the drafting decisions which have been bad um and i think you know you watch interviews with gerard mayo and i, I think he's a little giddy with the opportunity obviously he's not going to have the same level of control and, and power that belichick had um but you're looking at the cap space looking at this upcoming draft with a third overall pick i think mayo's really excited for uh, what he can do with this team in the future so yeah man that's good and he's got a really good start with cap space. So uh, for those of you listening, I pull all my my seller cap numbers from Spot Track. I know there's a lot of over-the-cap fans as well. Both are great websites. Um, I prefer the interface and a lot of the metrics that Spot Track uses. So this is all coming from Spot Track here. So Spot Track is estimating that at the start of the official offseason for the NFL, you guys are going to be rolling in somewhere between 69 and $71 million in, in cap space. 
which is a lot of money, especially figuring that you're going to have a QB on a rookie contract. That's a lot of money to throw around, my friend. So here are some of the key unrestricted free agents you guys have coming up. And this is where I want to start. Where, if you're going to spend any of that slice of cap space, Brandon, who are you focusing on bringing back? I'm going to give you a few names to choose from here. You got Hunter Henry, Kendrick Bourne, Mike Gusecki, Kyle Duggar, Josh Uche, and Mike Onuenu, just to name a few. So who is the key Patriot free agent you feel like you want to offer some of that cap space to and explain why it's Mike Gusecki, clearly? <laughs> <laughs> no, I want him gone. I want Gusecki gone. I'm glad, you know, Zeke should be out of there. Um, it, it all happened at once where they brought in Juju, Gasicki, Zeke, and it, it just felt like this weird mosaic of names that didn't fit the identity of the team. Um, so I think Juju still has another year on his contract, so he's going to be hanging out. But for me, the answer is Hunter Henry. Um, I, I want to see him excel as a tight end in a Patriots jersey. I think he's, you know, definitely drank the Kool-Aid in terms of, um, you know, getting in with the Patriots and being a, a strong locker room guy, I think he would do a lot to help transition the new quarterback, whoever that ends up being. Um, and so I, I want to see Hunter Henry come back uh, and, and catching balls and touchdowns in a Patriots jersey. Yeah. And, you know, you're going to have a young QB. Giving him a reliable tight end is such a great safety net for a young QB. You know, you're going to start over with probably some younger wide receivers as well in the draft. So giving a veteran pass-catching presence to this unit makes a lot of sense. For me, I love Kyle Duggar. I'd love to see him in a Bills uniform. But I get why you don't want to dedicate the amount of money he's going to get in cap space to a safety, given sure. the relative importance of that position now in the NFL. Um, Mike Onuenu, I mean, listen, man, on the offensive line, he was good. He's a better guard, I think. He plays, flashed a little bit of tackle, but he's a better guard. But you guys might as well just start over. Start over in free agency with uh, with the O-line because of how bad the protection was around Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi. Um, Josh Uche is an interesting one, but I agree with you. Probably disposable to some extent because of the deep edge class that we have here. So Hunter Henry is your pick. So why don't we talk a little bit about draft strategy? So here's where you guys line up. As you mentioned in the first round, you guys have the number three overall pick, well within striking distance, depending on how things shake out, to get one of the top QBs in this draft. Probably not Caleb Williams or Drake May, but almost definitely the Heisman winner in Jaden Daniels. Um, then you've got the one second round pick at 34, one third at 68. You draft at 103 in the fourth, 135, 181 in the sixth, and then 228 in the seventh. So I think your needs, as I read up a lot on Patriots Insiders, the needs for this team have been laid out pretty clearly. Got to figure out the QB situation. Got to address wide receiver and offensive line for sure. Depending on what happens with Duggar, you probably need to address the secondary. And then if you let both Henry and Gusecki go, you've also got to address the tight end position. Is there anything on that list, Brandon? Wide receiver, O-line, secondary, tight end, QB that you would add as a potential need for this squad heading into next season? I, I think that covers it. I, you know, I, when we look at the running back, I, obviously Ramondre Stevenson is coming back. He's been a big part of the very few offensive successes that the Patriots have seen. 
to your point about the O-line, I think O-line not just helps the quarterback, but it also is going to help that running back find gaps and um, get into the open field. So, And for the Patriots, that's Ramondre Stevenson. So I think quarterback and then big bodies on the O-line are the top two priorities heading into the offseason draft. Yeah, no, I, I think that's solid. I know, like Bills fans, a lot of Patriots fans are just salivating for a top-end pass pass catcher, and you guys are going to have a little bit of money to splash around. So, like, is T. Higgins in the cards for you guys, right? Are you guys going to make a big splash with one of these top-tier wide receivers that will be on the market, maybe a Mike Evans or somebody like that? What is your general thought on the wide receiver room? Because it's also a deep draft class as well. So do you see the Patriots stabilizing a little bit with some veteran investment, or are they going to go with a youth movement at wide receiver and take advantage of a deep draft class? It's so hard to say, to be honest, because, you know, you asked me a couple of years ago, I, I never would have saw Juju Smith-Schuster coming and playing for the Patriots. Um, so, it's so bizarre, isn't it, to see him in a Patriots uniform? The TikTok unusual. guy? Belichick signed the TikTok guy? Yeah, that really doesn't make any sense and, and still doesn't. Um so I love Mike Evans. I would love to see him play for the Patriots, but I don't think that's a reality. I think Evans is loyal to the Bucks, and um, it, it makes sense. That's where he's been his whole career. Um, so, so maybe, but like I said, I, I think if they do bring in veteran talent, it's not going to be somebody as seasoned as Mike Evans. I think it'll be potentially someone who's you know only been in the league a couple of years and, and had success. So. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, You guys probably end up doing a mix, right? I, God, it all depends too, right? Like I could also see you guys, I could see you guys going so many different directions on the offense. I think it's almost certain you guys take a QB in this draft, but I could also see like, depending on what you want to do in the draft, a Jacoby Brissett being somebody that you guys bring in as like a veteran bridge to a young QB. And then really using some of that high-end draft capital, I would love to see this personally. You guys used the third pick to draft Marvin Harrison Jr. Because I think he would be just an absolute stud. And I would hate to play against him, but I'd also love to watch him like twice a, twice a year. Because those are the only times I get Patriots games. Um, but I think he'd be a stud for you guys. And then draft, then trade back up into the first round to get a Bo Nix or a J.J. McCarthy. Then you sign Jacoby Brissett. And you've got a bridge guy to your your um you've got a bridge guy to your QB of the future, but you have raised the floor remarkably on this offense from what it was a year ago. It, I I don't know if that's going to be the case or not. But what do you think about my fantasy land with the Patriots just getting weird with their their third overall pick and going wide receiver? Well, I w- I want to get even weirder and let me know what you think. Uh, the odds that the Bears move on from Justin Fields and Justin Fields becomes a Patriot. I had this on my bingo card too, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think, and I think Kraft is, I don't want to say enamored with Fields, but he had his, like, arguably his pro breakout game against you guys on Monday Night Football. And, I mean, this was a Belichick thing, but Belichick was always fascinated with the athleticism of Josh Allen. And I feel like Justin Fields is the closest thing to that athletic profile in the league right now. Mayo is a product of the Belichick coaching tree. I wonder how much carryover there is there. And I mean, you guys are not going to have to give up a first round pick for fields, you know, 
maybe a second, maybe a future third you throw in there as well, a second and a third. If it was the 34th overall pick and a future third round pick, do you, do you, and the, but then knowing you've got to sign fields probably to an extension long term to make it worth it, do you do that? Do you put him on a veteran QB contract and then focus on offensive weapons in the draft? I, I, as a fan, I don't want to see that. I, I want to see a quarterback drafted. It's always very exciting, right? When, quarterbacks get drafted to to teams and so um new head coach new quarterback uh i think would would excite me the most as a fan yeah no i i know i mean you guys would be basically putting yourselves into the situation that the bears arguably want to avoid which is committing too much cap space to an unproven young qb yeah like it, it, and and I get it. I really do. And I think you guys could make some hay, even with like a Michael Penix Jr. Like I, I, um, I got to wait till the combine. I am starting to dig into my draft film and my draft guys and all that kind of stuff. How down some scouts are on Michael Penix out of Washington is bizarre to me because he seems to have a lot of great athletic tools that in the right system and with the right kind of offensive floor supporting him could be really, really good in this league. Like, uh, he's not as dynamic as Lamar Jackson, but a lot of the pre-draft talk about him like is very, very similar, like discounting a lot of the achievements that he made. So he'd be an interesting pick for you guys. Again, I also think to a veteran stabilizer because of the amount of cap space you guys have is not out of the realm of possibility. Um, may I interest you in a Kirk Cousins potentially coming to your squad? How would you feel about that? Kirk coming off of an, I think it's an Achilles injury, right? Something yeah, like that. Yeah. I don't think that's the play, to be honest. I, 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 I love what uh, Cousins has been able to do in Minnesota, and it's been really fun to watch. Um, and the injury, you know, is hard to watch, right? Uh, a guy that was uh, doing so well, uh, weapons all around him. Um, but no, again, for me, I, I want to, I want to, to see a quarterback drafted in the first round. That, that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, no, I think that'd be, I think that'd be right. So I give you Jacoby Brissett on the veteran market. I give you Jaden Daniels with the number three pick, or I give you a selection of Bo Nix, uh, Michael Penix, or J.J. McCarthy trading back up into the first round. What do you think is the most likely scenario as, as we see it now of who your QB would be out of that mix? Or do you choose other? Is it somebody we're not thinking about? So you don't think there's a world where Drake may drops to the third? Or no, third, I think third, third I, I think it's a definite possibility. I have no clue heading into draft season what teams are going to covet. Do I think someone I do I think someone is going to try to trade into the top two for Marvin Harrison Jr.? Not really. To give up that kind of package for a, a wide receiver, granted, generational talent and maybe the best player in the draft. I think the last time we saw it was like the Sammy Watkins, Odell Beckham Jr. year. People were trading like crazy to get one of those two guys in the draft. Um, so I don't know if that happens, which leads me to believe that if the Bears do trade out of the first pick, they're trading it to a team that wants a QB, like the New York Giants, Seattle Seahawks, someone like that. Um, the Commanders need a QB. So unless one of them becomes enamored with Jaden Daniels, which I could see the commanders doing, I don't think Drake may drops. They they seem to be right now pre-combine. 
the top two, top two QBs in this class. And then after those two consensus is there's a big drop off, but Daniels could have a really good combine. And we've seen it happen before where people we don't expect uh, to rise up, end up rising up the draft ranks. Uh, Mark Sanchez comes to and, mind <laughs> and vice versa, right? If you look back at Will Levis and what happened oh, with yeah. him expected to go very high, kept dropping and dropping and dropping. I think he fell to day two. So, um, you know, potentially the, the Patriots wait and see, you know, what happens and if, you know, they have other priorities, but Mayo in an interview flat out said they're going to draft the best player for a position that's very important which is a little cryptic, but also, you know, makes everybody think, okay, that means quarterback, right? No, that makes me think Marvin Harrison Jr. That okay. makes me think Marvin Harrison Jr., okay. man. I think you guys, I think you guys are going to get weird with it. And honestly, I don't mind it. Because yeah, not at all. I, I don't, I don't know. Again, it's so hard because we're pre-combine. I think Jane Daniels is good, but I do think there is a drop-off between Daniels, May, and Williams. So unless something wacky happens at the combine, which again, as you have perfectly said, does tend to happen, I could see a world where you guys are like, Jaden Daniels is not worth a top three pick right now, based on what we have to commit cap-wise into a fifth-year option on him. I could see you guys going either trading back and accumulating more picks because you do have a lot of areas of need, or drafting the best, inarguably the best player in this draft and Marvin Harrison Jr., and then taking your shot in the second round or trading back into the first round to grab one of these lower end, lower risk, higher floor QB prospects. Oh, listen, man, it's a, we've seen it. Like you just went through the Mac Jones era. Who was drafted in that season? It was Trevor Lawrence, who we still don't know if Trevor Lawrence is good. Trey Lance, Mac Jones, right? so many misses on QB in that draft. Like it, it's, it's like a 40% to 50% hit rate, right? So if you're telling me that Williams, May, and Daniels all get drafted with the first three picks, statistically speaking, two of those guys are going to be a bust. And if I'm your squad, after everything I just went through with Mac Jones, I don't want to roll those odds. What I want to do is pick a surefire uh, blue chip prospect and Marvin Harrison Jr. and figure out the rest either with a, a veteran bridge or a lower risk, pro, lower risk, lower contract commit, still talented prospect in the the latter first round, right? Yeah, I think that's that's totally fair. Yeah, so I don't know. We'll see. Maybe, maybe Mayo will call me and ask my opinion, <laughs> but I doubt it. I doubt it. I also don't want to give you guys tips on how to get good. Maybe this is reverse <laughs> psychology. Maybe I want you to do this so that you be bad, right? Maybe you should pick Daniels, Brandon. Maybe you should do that. What now? <laughs> I'm I'm confident that the Patriots organization is listening in and <laughs> writing furiously down your notes about what they should do. So. My wife doesn't even listen to this pod, so I doubt, I doubt the crafts are tuning in. But yeah, man. All right. So in summary, painful season, but I think a needed transition away from Belichick for you guys. It's time to turn the page on the dynasty and build something new. Uh, you want to see a, a youth movement, which I completely agree. And you want to see a QB drafted, right? And you would like to see, ideally, it, it sounds like your guy is Drake May, right? That's who you want to see fall to you. Am I right? I think that's what's within the realm of possibilities. So that's what I'm sort of holding on to hope for. And again, it could very well happen. 
I mean, he is, uh, he doesn't have the arm, te- he doesn't have the arm strength of a Josh Allen, but he's got like underrated mobility. He's got good size. He, he would be an interesting doppelganger, I think, to have in the AFC East to Josh for sure. So, and something you guys can build some talent around, but I'm rooting for weird. I hope you guys get weird with it. That's all I'm yeah. saying. Draft Marvin Harrison Jr. and let the chips fall where they may, my friend. <laughs> well, very good stuff, dude. Listen, we appreciate your insights as always into the team. Um, and we'll have you back on for our mock AFC East draft later on in April as part of our Buffalo Bread pre-draft coverage. Um, but until then, for those of you listening at home, like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast, Google, Apple, Spotify, and as always, go Bills.